service. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rockerola. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Badlands is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about South African Paralympic sprinter Oscar Pistorius are insane. He was the first double amputee to ever compete in the Olympic Games. Prior to that, he routinely broke world records and won gold medals at Paralympic events all over the world. But his unprecedented success on the track was often overshadowed by his unprecedented behavior off the track. He shot a handgun in a crowded restaurant and tried to pin the blame on a friend. He spent a night in jail after a woman accused him of assault. He nearly died when he crashed his boat at top speed into a concrete jetty. He made enemies with the wrong people, like some of the most notorious criminals behind some of the most notorious gangs at one of the most notorious prisons in South Africa. Before everything spiraled out of control, Oscar Pistorius was also at the center of some of the most unbelievable sports moments of all time. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't from a great sports moment. That was a preset loop from my Mellotron called Blade Runner Boogie MK1. I played you that clip because I can't afford the rights from WWE to a broadcast of Alberto Del Rio reclaiming his heavyweight title with a final kick to the head of Dolph Ziggler. And why would I play you that specific slice of macho cheese? Could I afford it? Because that was one of the biggest events in sports on February 14th, 2013. And that was the day that Oscar Pistorius's off-track life finally eclipsed his professional accolades when he shot girlfriend Riva Steenkamp to death inside his posh South African home. On this episode, world records, prison gangs, macho sporting cheese, a brutal Valentine's Day murder, and the man they called the Blade Runner, Oscar Pistorius. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Season two, Sportsland. The general didn't mince words. He didn't stutter. When he spoke, his voice was as clear and direct as his actions. 
as clear and direct as the shank that he stuck inside those two dudes in Hosi Mampuru prison in South Africa back in 2013. The general, aka Khalil Sabji, was a long-term prisoner inside Kosi Mampuru, and he and his gang, the 26s, ran the place. Forget the guards and the warden, the general was feared more than anyone else on the inside. He controlled the fear, so he controlled the population. He said who lived and who died, who received his gang's protection, and who deserved their wrath. The general and the 26s had taped photos of Nelson Mandela to the prison walls as tribute to the former president, who in 2013 had just died at the age of 95. Mandela himself had done time within those very walls in the turbulent 1960s. And then, along came these two assholes. They spat at the photos and at Mandela's memory. It was like they were asking to get stuck with that blade. The general didn't wait to be asked twice, so he stabbed them both. Destination, fucked. Everyone was fucked inside Hosimampuru. The jail housed the hardest of hardened criminals. The air was thick with piss and misery. Back in the days of apartheid, when the joint was called Pretoria Central Prison, it made a name as ground zero for death row inmates. They had capital punishment down to efficient science. They hung seven men at a time. These days, the prisoners hung themselves when they had the chance. Sometimes tying one end of a bedsheet around your neck and the other around a cold metal bar at the top of the cell was the only way you'd ever escape that godforsaken place. And in March of 2014, it looked like Hosi Mampuru just might get its most famous inmate in decades. Oscar Pistorius, the decorated double amputee Paralympian known around the world as the Blade Runner for the sleek prosthetic blades he wore while sprinting, had just begun trial for fatally shooting his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, at the High Court of South Africa. If he was found guilty, he would most likely be sentenced to prison at Hosi Mampuru. Perhaps prison wouldn't be so bad. He was rich after all, not to mention famous and well-loved by most in South Africa. Some, however, saw him as entitled, delusional, above the law. And not just any law, but above the twisted law of gang hierarchies that existed inside a place like Hosi Mampuru. So the general, the prisoner who called the shots inside that most feared house of horrors, sent a message to Oscar Pistorius' legal team. If Oscar thought he could just use his fame and wealth to buy himself a cush stay on the inside, not to mention buy immunity from guys like the General and the 26s, he was dead wrong. All the privilege in the world didn't mean shit on the inside. The General would see that Oscar was taken out, just because he could, just because he wanted to. The General's words shook Oscar to his core. The pressure was now even greater to prove his innocence. The burden of proof was with the state. If they could prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Oscar had, in fact, intentionally shot his girlfriend, Riva Steenkamp, four times while she hid in a bathroom in his house on Valentine's Day in 2013, then Oscar wasn't just headed to prison. With guys like the general running the joint, he was headed to a death sentence. Oscar sat in court, his head hung low, and listened to his defense team relay the general's chilling message to the judge. Their conclusion, Oscar would not be safe in the South African prison system. Oscar felt the fear come back, but the fear had never really left him. The fear was always there, pushed back into a recess of his mind. Deep down, there it waited for the right time to push back. 
Now the fear consumed Oscar once again. The fear manifested itself in many different ways, like a shapeshifter in the dark. There was the fear of failure, the fear that the hurdle of Oscar's severe disability was insurmountable. That fear pushed back every time he tried to walk or run like any other able-bodied person. There was the fear of a reckoning, the one that pushed back in the early hours of February 14, 2013, immediately after he'd shot his 9mm pistol into the closed bathroom door of his house. As the gunshot blast rang in his ears, he had only just begun to comprehend exactly what he had done. And then there was the fear that his life was in immediate danger. That was a fear that had pushed back many times before. Because the general's threats from behind bars weren't the first threats Oscar Pistorius had received. Fall, 2012. For days, weeks even, there were shadowy figures lurking in the dark. Men. They followed Oscar around. Men whose sole purpose in life was to make him feel unsafe. Men who were always two steps away from jumping out of the shadows with a bat to take out his prosthetic legs, and a plastic bag to suffocate him after he hit the ground. Oscar was convinced they were guys sent by a South African millionaire businessman who had stolen away his ex-girlfriend, Samantha Taylor. He was convinced that this businessman wanted to scare him off with a little muscle, the muscle for hire of two capable and strapping men. The muscle for hire, however, had gone back to the millionaire businessman with extortion on their minds. Pay us extra or we're not gonna just scare him. We're gonna put a fucking bullet in the Blade Runner's head. Oscar didn't know if the guys lurking in the shadows and following him everywhere were just trying to spook him or if they actually wanted to hurt him. So he started carrying a gun with him wherever he went. He stuffed it down the back of his pants. He tossed it in the back seat of his BMW. He never left home without it. But when he was home, it was always by his side. At Oscar's murder trial in Pretoria, however, the prosecution made a case that guns were par for the course in Oscar's life. They played a video for the court of Oscar taking target practice on watermelons. He called his gun a zombie killer and compared the guts of the exploded melons to brains. The prosecution also recounted the time at a crowded restaurant in 2013 when Oscar fired a live round from a handgun under his table and then asked a friend to take the fall. Another time in 2012, Oscar allegedly shot a gun through a car's sunroof. Further, it was stated that Oscar wasn't the kind of guy who received threats. He was the kind of guy who made threats. Oscar's fear began to shapeshift again. It was no longer the fear of immediate danger. Now it was the fear of a world that was upside down. Right was wrong and day was night. And Oscar Pistorius, the Blade Runner, the man who cleared hurdles and broke barriers and, in the course of an improbably incredible athletic career, united a country that desperately needed healing after a half-century of apartheid and pain, was no longer what he once was. The fear now was that Oscar Pistorius was no longer a hero. The fear was that he was not a source of pride. The fear was that he was not a symbol of triumph over adversity. The fear was that he was now, simply, just the guy who squeezed the trigger four times. The fear was that he was now destined to be known as a murderer. June 16th. 1976, Soweto Township, Johannesburg, South Africa. The girl was sweeping her front lawn when she first heard the voices. 
that were faint but growing louder by the minute. Power, power. One voice, then another, and another. Men, women, voices carried on the wind. Power, power. Then the girl continued to sweep the debris off her front lawn with a handmade stick broom. And there was no grass on her lawn, but the broom and the sweeping kept the dirt lawn clean and free of weeds. Soon the sound of voices wasn't the only thing carried on the wind. The sound of car engines rumbled within earshot. The wind announced their arrival by carrying thick clouds of dust and wafts of petrol. The girl couldn't see what was going on in the center of the township. All she could hear were revving engines and the unbroken chant, power, power, over and over again. And then, a loud crack. Screams. Soon, the thick clouds in the wind were 10% dust, 90% tear gas. Loud shots, gunshots. The girl could hear the shouting intensify, the screaming too, more guns. She decided to head back inside her house and finish sweeping the yard once things became more stable. And that's when she was hit. The bullet came out of nowhere, and it killed her instantly. The Soweto uprising claimed the lives of many innocent people, far more than the all-white National Party that the uprising opposed would care to admit. The National Party rose to power in South Africa in 1948 and quickly instituted its policy of racial segregation, known as apartheid, a policy that would dehumanize a population and sow discontent in black communities for decades. During the Soweto Uprising, students had taken to the streets in 1976 in what was intended to be a peaceful protest over a new decree which made all black schools use an equal mixture of English and Afrikaans in their lessons. But black South Africans didn't speak Afrikaans, a language evolved from Dutch. To quote Bishop Desmond Tutu, Afrikaans was the language of the oppressor. Soweto wasn't the first time apartheid-era riots tore South Africa's people apart. There were many other moments of conflict and violence, like in Sharpville, another township near Johannesburg in 1960, when police opened fire with submachine guns on unarmed protesters. 69 killed and 180 wounded. Fucking brutal. Fast forward to 1986. Oscar Pistorius was born that year in Santon, an affluent area of Johannesburg, and apartheid was still a thing. South Africa still had major problems, Nelson Mandela remained behind bars. Economic sanctions were imposed from other countries, which led to the withdrawal of a significant amount of foreign investment and strain on the South African economy. South African athletes were banned from competing in the Olympic Games. The United Nations had announced a cultural boycott. Bruce Springsteen's go-to guitar man, Stephen Van Zandt, assembled a punk rock Voltron to record Sun City a charity single that dissed on bullshit oppression, and he also promised to not perform in any hotbeds of racial segregation, inspiring other popular artists to do the same. Even though the groundswell opposing apartheid was strong in the 1980s, it wasn't until 1990 that Nelson Mandela was freed from prison. It was another four years after that before the nearly half-century apartheid regime was dismantled once and for all. And then, it was 10 years after the downfall of apartheid that Oscar Pistorius finally pushed fear into the recess of his mind, defied the odds, and sprinted like a redemptive hero. The arc of Oscar Pistorius's professional sprinting career mirrored that of his home country's rise from the ashes of institutionalized racism. Both Oscar and South Africa had their moments of rebirth and transcendence. Both had been given second chances to do something different and do something good. And although Oscar was born into wealth, his road to rebirth was paved with daunting challenges from an early age. 
Both of his legs were amputated at 11 months old due to a birth defect called fibular hemimelia, which left them without bones and thus made it nearly impossible to walk. His first challenge was to walk like any other able-bodied person, and his upper socioeconomic class status meant that prosthetic legs were an option. When he got the walking down, he ran, and that led to his next challenge, to run faster than anyone else. He wanted to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that his body was just as able as anybody, and not just as able, but more able. So he had Brian Frazier, an American prosthetist and Paralympian, fit him with sleek carbon fiber blades to run on. In 2004, strapped to those flex-foot cheetah blades, Oscar, just 17 years old, competed in the Summer Paralympics in Athens. At 21.97 seconds, his gold medal win with the 200 meter wasn't just a new record. It was a new record that left the previous world record set by Brian Frazier, the carbon fiber blade creator, in the dust. Next up, the 2005 Visa Paralympic World Cup, gold. Then, the 2006 IPC Athletics World Championships, more gold. After that, the 2007 Nedbank Championship for the Physically Disabled, gold. The 2008 Dutch Open National Championships, also gold. Oscar's next challenge was to transcend Paralympian. He wanted to compete against able-bodied sprinters. He wanted to level up. He wanted to be an Olympian. But ever since his record-breaking win in Athens, able-bodied sprinters, not to mention the International Association of Athletics Federations, had begun to look at Oscar Pistorius a little differently. Oscar was no longer a courageous human interest story. He was no longer an inspiration. Suddenly, he was a threat. No two-legged athlete was gonna be shown up by a guy with, what even are those things? Are they bionic? Is he part machine? Are those even legal? Oh, sure as fuck wasn't fair. All of a sudden, Oscar Pistorius was a freak. He had an unfair advantage. That's what Olympic runners thought. And that's what the International Association of Athletics Federations, or the IAAF, said. They also said that Oscar's J-shaped blades had no place in Olympic competition. He had leveled up far enough. With those carbon fiber blades, he was accused of being the one thing that honest athletes never want to be accused of. A cheat. And so, Oscar's next challenge was to prove, again, beyond reasonable doubt, that he was no cheat. And furthermore, that his blades were the same as a pair of biological legs. He lawyered up, and the lawyers set up a series of tests. They put Oscar on a treadmill. They monitored his vitals. They tracked the energy he expended while he ran. They monitored fatigue resistance. They paid attention to sprinting mechanics. The team concluded that Oscar used 17% less energy than his able-bodied competitors and that it took him 21% less time to swing his legs between strides. And the researchers were split on interpreting the data, but most of them agreed that there was insufficient evidence that Oscar had an unfair advantage. And that's what the lawyers told the Court of Arbitration for Sport in 2008 when they appealed the IAAF's ban. The IAAF, in turn, was persuaded by the evidence and the argument. In May of that year, the ban on Oscar Pistorius was overturned. Oscar Pistorius officially had a chance to become the fastest man with no legs to sprint at the Olympic Games. And South Africa had its symbol of national pride that could help rebuild the country's image in a post-apartheid world. July 16th, 2008, Lucerne, Switzerland. The qualifying race for the Olympics and Oscar Pistorius's chance to secure a spot on the South African team. The required time, 45.55 seconds. 
In the last two years, no South African sprinter in the 400-meter race had been able to meet that required time. Oscar was used to achieving the impossible. The sun sat high in the sky. Zero clouds, 70 degrees. The runners took their lanes. Oscar crouched into position. The tint of his yellow sunglasses refused to betray exactly what was going through his mind. The gold-colored spikes on the bottom of his flex-foot cheetah blades bit into the starting blocks. The starting gun broke the silence with a crack. Oscar lunged forward. He sprinted, right blade, left blade. He was flying right out of the gate. 10 seconds. Oscar's arms swung like pendulums at his side. The sun was on his back. He passed another sprinter on the left and then felt another creep up on his right. 20 seconds. Oscar tried to block out the runner passing him by, focusing on his breath. In, out, right blade, left blade, 30 seconds. Oscar needed to surge. He needed to find the energy in the tank and push forward, harder. This was it. This is the last chance to qualify. He had to get to the finish line, fast, 40 seconds. Another runner passed him. Oscar stretched his chest out and dug at the air with his arms, right arm, left arm, and then finish line. He slowed his sprint to a jog and then to a walk. He looked up at his time, 46.25 seconds, a personal best, but not good enough for the Olympics. He had failed to come in under the 45.55 second qualifying time. He wouldn't join the South African Olympics team in Beijing next month. He would remain a Paralympian. He felt disappointment. He felt pain in his lungs. And he felt something else too, fear. The fear that the impossible dream truly was impossible. The fear that there was no next level to level up to. And the fear that there was only one way left for him to go, down. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. Johann Stipp was jolted awake by three loud bangs. They came rapidly, one on top of another. He climbed out of bed and walked to the balcony of his house in the gated community of Silverwood's country estate, Pretoria, South Africa. It was pitch black early morning, February 14th, 2013. Johan could hear screaming coming from another house in Silver Woods. He thought at first that they were a woman's screams, but now he wasn't so sure. Didn't matter. They were anguished screams. Someone was hurt. Johan was a doctor. He'd heard his fair share of anguished screams. Plus, Johan knew all too well that South Africa had a never-ending epidemic of male violence against women. At the turn of the 21st century, South Africa's murder rate of women was more than five times the global average. Thinking this, Johan couldn't help but also think that what he was hearing was a violent domestic struggle. He called the private security guards who worked 24-7 for the housing complex and told them where the noises were coming from, and he told them to hurry. Then he heard more screams erupt into the pitch black morning, and then three more bangs. Johan got himself dressed in a hurry and decided to head in the direction of the noise. If someone was hurt, perhaps he could offer medical assistance. As he fumbled through the pre-dawn darkness and got closer to the source of the calamity, Johan knew it was Oscar Pistorius's house he was approaching. The gated community of Silverwoods was a prestigious address for its residents, but no one inside the high-end secured estate was more famous than Oscar Pistorius. Just six months earlier, in the summer of 2012, Oscar made history 
by becoming the first double amputee to ever compete against able-bodied athletes in the Olympic Games. Qualifying for the 2012 Olympic team was one of his greatest and most emotional accomplishments, especially after he failed to initially qualify in 2008. Now he was an Olympic athlete, which meant he had endorsements with Nike, Oakley, a British telecommunications firm and French fashion designer. Oscar's face was plastered on billboards all over South Africa. He was a household name, not just in his home country, but throughout the world. But now, he was about to be remade famous for an entirely different reason. August 4th, 2012, London, Olympic Stadium. The crowd roared when Oscar's name was announced over the PA. He paced in lane six, wearing his green and yellow South African team jersey, orange-tinted Oakley shades hiding the fact that he was on the verge of tears. He waved to the crowd, his face quivering with emotion. He had arrived. He had done it. He had proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Oscar Pistorius had qualified for the South African Olympic team and was now about to make history simply by competing with other able-bodied athletes. Round one, men's 100 meter the motherfucking Summer Olympics. It hadn't been an easy road to arrive at that hallowed stage. After initially failing to qualify for the Olympics in 2008, Oscar went on to sweep all three of his races at the Beijing Paralympics. Gold, gold, and gold. He ran like a Blade Runner with something to prove, and he didn't just win, he crushed it. 100 meter, 11.16 seconds, personal best. 400 meter, 47.49 seconds, world record. The wins were dramatic, the redemption was palpable. But even though things were once again looking up on the track, off the track was a different story. The next year in 2009, Oscar was violently tossed off a boat he was steering in the Val River when it hit a partially submerged concrete jetty at top speed. His face and skull were fractured, his eyes nearly gouged out. And then later that year, he spent the night in jail when a 19-year-old woman accused him of assault while at a party at his house. Oscar said it was an accident. Oscar's name was appearing in the papers for all the wrong reasons. It seemed that one accident barely had time to recede from public memory before another sprung forth. And then there was a day around 2011 or so that Oscar spent riding around in a car through back roads outside a small township. He was driving fast, too fast, which was typical. He drove like he ran. It wasn't unusual for Oscar to drive upwards of 150 miles an hour, his face distracted by his cell phone. And that day, the dog came out of nowhere. It shuffled quickly through the dirt and disappeared under the car's wheels. There was a bump, a high-pitched cry. Oscar hit the brakes, and the smell of burnt rubber hit his nose. Oscar exited the car and looked back in the road, and the dog was dragging itself by its front legs through the dirt. And now the dog's owner was on the scene, screaming, crying, hands thrown towards the heavens. He was either praying to God or cursing Oscar to hell. Oscar walked back to his car. He pulled a pistol from the glove box. He walked back over to where the dog was dragging itself. The owner was full tilt hysterical, Oscar cocked the gun, pushed it against the back of the dog's head, and pulled the trigger. Oscar's girlfriend at the time, Samantha Taylor, saw the development of Oscar's disturbing mood swings firsthand. He was quick to temper. She feared that she would one day be involved in one of his accidents. So she made the hard decision to leave him. Samantha's departure from his life was right at the moment of the triumph of his professional career 
the 2012 Summer Olympics in London. But it was also around that time that Oscar met Riva Steenkamp, gorgeous South African model. Though she wasn't just a pretty face for the brands that employed her, she was as compassionate as she was beautiful, which was obvious by her participation as the literal poster girl for Spirit Day, an annual anti-bullying campaign aimed at vulnerable kids. Riva would soon learn what Samantha had learned before her, about what it meant to be in a relationship with Oscar. And there were times when you were happy, but also times when you felt inescapable fear. You would try to shake it off and tell yourself that you didn't know what it was that made you feel that way, but deep down you knew. You knew exactly where the fear was coming from. In the early hours of February 14th, 2013, Johann Stipp, the doctor who resided in Pretoria's Silverwoods country estate, had located where the bangs had been coming from. And he had found something else too. Riva Steenkamp, limp and lifeless, on the floor of Oscar Pistorius' house. Oscar stood next to the body. He was wearing athletic shorts and socks. One half of the shorts was soaked in blood, deep red, so deep and so red that the shorts almost looked black. The blood ran down his exposed prosthetic legs. I shot her, Oscar said to Johan, like he couldn't believe what he was saying. I thought she was an intruder and I shot her. Oscar didn't look anything like the hero of the racetrack or the symbol of hope on the South African billboards. He looked disassembled, broken down. He looked like the truth after it had been exposed to the cold light of day. Johan turned his attention to the victim. She was covered in blood. Johan tried to open her airway. He checked for a pulse. He opened her right eyelid. He looked directly into her eye, pupil fixed and dilated, cornea milky, and knew that she was already gone. There was a gunshot wound in her right thigh, another in her upper right arm. And the right side of her head was blown apart where another bullet pierced her skull. Her hair and face were covered in blood and brain matter. Oscar was crying, and then he began to pray. He told God that he would devote his life and her life to him if God would just let her live. But God wasn't taking calls. And Riva Steenkamp, 29, beautiful, compassionate, was dead because Oscar Pistorius had killed her. Mr. Pistorius, please stand up. Having regard to the totality of this evidence in this matter, the unanimous decision of this court is the following. September 11, 2014, High Court of South Africa. Day 42 of Oscar Pistorius' trial for the murder of Riva Steenkamp. Oscar's challenge to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that he did not knowingly murder his girlfriend while she hid in a cramped bathroom in his exclusive gated community house. This had become the biggest challenge of his life. For months, he sold his side of the story. He thought there was an intruder in his house early in the morning of Valentine's Day 2013. He thought he was protecting Riva. He didn't know it was Riva inside that bathroom when he haphazardly aimed his 9mm into the bathroom and shot four times. And the defense didn't buy it. The story they sold was of a jealous, possessive, insecure, and fearful man. A man obsessed with guns. A man who was a ticking time bomb. That Oscar Pistorius 
was the complete antithesis of the hopeful Paralympian who allowed his fellow countrymen to feel pride again after decades of racism and conflict. And now, it was Judgment Day for the 27-year-old, who, regardless of his intention, was the only person in the entire courtroom responsible for an innocent woman's death. Pride and hope were in short supply. On count one, murder read with section 51.1 of the Criminal Law Amendment Act, guilty of culpable homicide. Not guilty of murder, guilty of culpable homicide. In other words, manslaughter. The sentence, five years. Oscar had, in effect, overcome the biggest challenge of his life. The outrage came quickly. It came from Riva Steenkamp's family, who simply stated justice was not served. The outrage came from women's rights advocates, who feared that by clearing Oscar of murder, abusive men had effectively been given carte blanche to kill their female partners without fear of consequence. The outrage came from citizens all over South Africa, who felt they'd been played by a murderer. They made sure the hashtag Justice for Riva trended high on Twitter. Every instance of outrage shared the same core sentiment. Oscar Pistorius had caught a lucky break due to his fame and his wealth. In prison, to serve his relatively light five-year sentence, Oscar remembered fame and wealth wouldn't guarantee him any lucky breaks. He remembered the threat from Khalil Subji, the general, the prisoner who ran the prison on fear. The only lucky break waiting in Hosi Mampuru was the one where Oscar didn't wind up beaten to death with his own prosthetics by a bloodthirsty gang member. Oscar did get one significant break when he officially became an inmate. Due to his disability, he was housed in the hospital wing in his own cell with his own toilet away from the majority of other prisoners. And that made Oscar feel somewhat safe, but not safe enough. He needed a powerful friend on the inside, and he found one, his neighbor, in the hospital wing. Radovan Kretschel was a Czech mob boss doing time for kidnapping and attempted murder. Radovan and Oscar became unlikely friends, and they were filmed on another inmate's cell phone playing soccer in the hospital wing's gym. Soon, Radovan dealt Oscar in on the plan. The plan wasn't to rot in a jail cell. The plan went like this. Radovan's Playboy Bunny girlfriend was going to sell the Mercedes he bought her. Then she was going to use the money from the Mercedes to pay off a bunch of low-life corrupt guards. Those corrupt guards would look the other way when a team of jailbreakers with assault rifles stormed the prison. They'd bust old Radovan out. There would be a helicopter waiting. He'd fly to his safe house. Then they'd take his other Mercedes across the border to Mozambique. Fuck South Africa. And just to dot all his I's and cross all his T's, Rodovan had squirreled away a handgun inside the treadmill in the prison gym. He'd liberate the firearm from hiding when his team busted through the front door. Rodovan told Oscar there was an extra seat in the helicopter if he wanted in. In the meantime, Rodovan needed Oscar to hold onto a hard drive for him. He was already hiding prison guard uniforms, ammo, and plans of the prison in his cell. He had to diversify where we stashed any incriminating evidence. Oscar felt the thrill of a batshit prison break plan. And then he felt the fear. He felt the fear most poignantly on September 27, 2015, when prison guards raided Oscar's cell. The guards weren't as corrupt as Radovan had said they were, and they were looking for that hard drive. That same day, prison guards raided Radovan's cell and found the uniforms. They found the ammo and the prison plants, too. They found nothing on the hard drive to incriminate Oscar, but it certainly didn't help when the courts went to reevaluate his sentence. 
In December of 2015, the Supreme Court of Appeal, after calling Oscar's initial conviction quote-unquote shockingly lenient, changed his conviction to murder and resentenced him to 15 years at Hosi Mempuru. Oscar no longer had a Czech mob boss for a pal, but he still had a prison gang leader for an enemy. Even worse was the unknown. The sounds from the other wings of the prison played tricks on his mind. The shadows, the echoes, he never knew if he was truly alone or if there was someone else there. He could never be sure. On the inside, only one thing was for sure. Gold medals didn't mean shit. The only thing left was fear. And when fear rules, the game is over. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Badlands. Badlands was created by me, Jake Brennan, and produced by Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at badlandspod.com. Subscribe, follow, like, rate, and review the Badlands podcast wherever you get your podcast because Badlands is available everywhere. If you love this show, tell someone, tell everyone, shout us out on social, spread the word, and follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Double Elvis. It's a show of guys.